0: Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to The Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Friday, July 20th, 2018, starting at 6.47 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 164th episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Austin Kopic about his new book titled The Celestial Art, Essays on Astrological Magic." Uh, hey, buddy. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure, man. All right. This, this episode has actually been a long time in coming because I've been meaning to do just a general—on the one hand, I've been meaning to do a general episode on this very broad topic of astrology and magic for quite some time now. And then on the other hand, I've known for at least a couple of years now that you've been working on this book. And uh, I've been waiting and sort of putting it off until your book came up in order to have this big discussion and now it's finally out and here we are. Yeah, here we are is the, the moon conjoins Jupiter and Scorpio. Right. We have a nice election today. I really appreciate our, our election here with at least in Denver, we've got early Capricorn rising, Saturn and Capricorn, and this lovely moon Jupiter conjunction in Scorpio that seems appropriate. But you've been working on this book for, for quite some time, right? When did this project first come together?
1: Oh boy! I think that I was approached um, by the publisher about doing this right after, uh, right after uh, uh, Faces Thirty Six Faces was published. I think maybe discussions happened at the end of twenty fourteen.
0: Okay, so your first book, and and it was published by the same publisher of your first book on the Decans, uh, and the publisher is, is Three Hands Press. And your book on the Deccans came out, you said in what, like 2013, 2014? 2014. It
1: came out, I remember, because it was literally the day of my Jupiter return. Like the one day out of every 12 years where Jupiter is conjunct your Jupiter, right. that was the day I received my copies of the book in the mail, wow. <laughs> which you really, you know, mail isn't even reliable enough to try to make that happen. Um. So yeah, I do remember when that happened.
0: Brilliant. All right, so that was a few years ago now and this book, so Three Hands Press is typically more of a small occult publisher, but you've been working with them over the past few years. They did your Deccan's book which was beautiful and this is seems like the sort of next step in that evolution. I mean, even though your Deccan's book was really notable and important and unique, this is something else. Like this is a much more, I think from my perspective going to be a much more significant book historically um just because you're really i mean you were sort of broaching new ground with the previous book obviously but this is a much bigger topic and i'm really surprised at i knew this was going to be a good compilation because one of the things about it is that you had an all-star team of of people writing essays for this book but i'm actually getting it and reading it over the past few weeks i was actually still surprised at the quality and like how thorough the coverage was of this topic that you guys really did set out to give uh, a very broad overview of this topic while still getting into a lot of details at the same time.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear that that was uh, that was certainly the intention to do that. Part of what I was trying to do with the authors that um, that we had was to should we say define the space in which astrological magic occurs, both historically and in terms of different approaches and viewpoints. Um, there's, as you, you know, I'm sure you noticed. there's, you know, um, Lee Layman um, gave us a really excellent, um, chronological overview of the text of the intersection of, uh, astrology and magic in, you know, in given texts. But then there are also essays that are, um, explicitly pragmatic in a, like, you know, in a how to <laughs> sort of way, or when you're doing this, think about this. And so I was really, I was trying to, you know, uh how should we say make uh, create a big enough bubble uh to contain as much as possible and give people hopefully just a sense of what are the different considerations historical, practical,
0: theoretical, etc., um, within this area. Right. And so this is a you know, this is a book that you edited, but what it is is a compilation of papers where a number of of different people that have done important work in this Overlapping field these overlapping fields between astrology and magic or the areas where they do overlap, have each written sort of lengthy and detailed and pretty high level essays on different sort of facets of this topic. Um, what was your process of like deciding who who would contribute to this? because I'm actually I was surprised at how many great authors you actually got into this book. How did you get all of that them together?
1: I, I think I literally just sat down and wrote a wish list of people. <laughs> was this like Based your on...
0: ideal wish list of like, if I could write the ideal book on like astrology and magic, this was pretty much the list you came up with?
1: Yeah. At the time, you know, um, since the publication, I've gotten to know some other practitioners that I didn't know back then. And I'm like, oh, it would have been cool if they were in there. I think the only person we might have had a. F- uh i think the only person that i invited who wasn't able to contribute uh because of other responsibilities was christopher warnock mm. which you know he's he's um uh held the torch for astrological magic for a long time and so it's a bit of a pity that um that it didn't happen but you know whatever 9 out a 12 out of 13 ain't bad
0: <laughs> yeah i mean i mean this is definitely like i said earlier an all-star cast so you have um, at the beginning of the book, it's like you have the very first essay, but then there's Lee Lehman, Benjamin Dykes, Demetra George, John Michael Greer, who famously did the, I mean, a number of things, but most famously for, from the astrological community standpoint, wrote or did the translation of the Picatrix with Christopher Warnock a few years ago in 2010. Uh, Freedom Cole, who's a practitioner of Vedic astrology, who I know you're a, a big fan of and you've studied his work a lot, right?
1: Yeah, I'm actually currently in his um year-long Vedic astrology program. Okay. Which is um that that was a result of growing admiration for the the way that his his tradition was handling material over several years. Um <laughs> you know, and reading his essay and editing uh his essay for uh for the Celestial Art.
0: Right. Uh let's see other authors include uh Jason Miller, Eric Perdue, Al Cummings, uh, Aaron Sheik, Mallory Vadois, uh, Daniel, and Dan, Daniel Skulkey, right? Is that a pronounce? Uh, Schulke. Uh,
1: Dan, who, Dan was my co-editor on this and is the owner of, uh, Three Hands Press. Okay. Uh,
0: great. Yeah. And he, uh, annoyingly on Amazon, for some reason, it lists Demetrius as like the author or something just because she's one of the contributors. But you and, and Daniel are the, the two that edit, sat on and edited these papers and put together the whole compilation.
1: Yeah, we talked about who to invite and you know, and went back and forth with people and you know, there was um there's a lot of uh I don't know. I'd never I've never edited an anthology before. And so this was a this is a new experience. It's different than writing your own book. In some ways it's easier, in other ways it's more complicated. Um, you know, cuz you have you some you you know, have to dialogue with people about I love this part. I'm not so sure about this. Can we do more of this? You know, et cetera, et cetera, and so there was. It was it was fun though. I really liked that um, um, sort of shaping via dialogue mm-hmm. and seeing. You know, uh, w- you know, you, when you were saying earlier about how um, you know, in some ways, the celestial art is m- more significant, or well, that wasn't exactly the term used. Than than thirty six phases. What I was going to say as well. I had you know a dozen people's talent to draw on. <laughs> for this one, whereas I only had my talent to draw on for 36 faces.
0: <laughs> right. Well, it's like each of these people could have written a book on the topics, an entire book on the topics they addressed. But instead, what you get is a very concentrated, high level treatment of each of these topics within each of these essays, which ends up being, you know, almost could have been like an anthology in and it of itself. But instead, it's it's like condensed down to the, the essence of what they were uh, covering in each of these essays. And the other thing that's really striking. That you can see is um, because it's essays from different authors, it switches from the writing style and the sort of tone from some of them switches from essay to essay, but they're all written extremely well. And you can kind of see what it's like for different writers who've honed their skills and developed their writing practice over years and what it looks like to have somebody who has a different voice or is speaking in a different voice, but is still writing at a very high level. And treating like a very interesting and, and deep subject at the same time.
1: I'm glad you enjoyed that. Yeah, we, there were where there were some editorial questions about, you know, do we try to herd people towards a more um, cohere? How should we say, uh, to you know, to push or encourage the authors to keep a more uh, a continuity of style between the essays, or do we really just let every let every author Shine, you know in in the in their own shine in their own voice, one doesn't shine with a voice, but you know what I mean right um and i you know what we went for a more um you know heterodox, like let everybody let the essays come from different angles um you know scholarly historical over here there, casual super practical over here, like let everything come from different angles as well as uh in different voices. Right. So I'm, I'm glad that, that that worked for you.
0: Yeah. I mean, it worked really well. And, and I mean, obviously, and nowhere actually, what is it more notable or interesting in terms of just your essay opening at the very beginning where your, your opening essay for the entire compilation was on the fixed stars and you wrote it in your voice. And it was really interesting and, and fun seeing you write a serious and important, um, treatment of a topic like this in, yeah, just the the writing style that you've developed over the course of the past decade or two. Um, it was nice seeing that open up the entire compilation. Did you like adopt a? Sp- or, you know, what were you going for with your opening essay, or how did what sort of tone did you want to set? Well, so
1: it wasn't decided that my essay would be the first until about two and a half months ago. Okay, that was one of the last decisions made before it went to, <laughs> before it went to layout. Um, and that was, that was Mr. Shulky's idea. Um, and I, I think it's not a, yeah, we, uh, Dan and I, um, open and close the book with our essays, um, which I think is kind of fun. Um, and so, I don't know, I think it was probably like stepping outside of, um, pride, the pride and or embarrassment that an author feels about their own work. Um, I, I, I think my. Uh, my essay was probably good in terms of a good way to open in terms of tone, um, because it's both scholarly in some portion. It's scholarly in some portions. It is um, poetic reflection in others, and it's practical in others. And so, you know, it's that what I hoped would be mm, large in scope. And multitudinous in focus, but still coherent. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's kind of the style of all of the essays when taken as a whole. So I think maybe that's you know, that's what Dan was thinking with putting mine first, and I can see that.
0: Yeah, I think it actually really worked because it reminded me a lot of um, you know, like mixing uh like a an audio CD or or mixing a, you know, an audio album or like a band's album, and there's like certain Albums where they're just mixed really well in terms of like the sequence of the tracks, and it just comes together like like um, you know Nirvana's Nevermind, uh, which was mixed by well partially by Butch Vig, but sometimes you have you just have some albums where like the sequence of the tracks like they really nail it, and it creates a a, a nice orderly um, thing that has like it highs and lows, but just ends up working out really well as a full compilation, and I think you guys achieved that here in terms of the order and the sequence of the essays because it it opens with your essay you know sort of going to great sort of rhetorical heights um in ways that you're you as, as I am wont to do yeah uh that was definitely turned up to to ten and I was on full display but then you get like Lee giving this this amazing historical overview of and sort of catalog of like the history of major astrological um, magical texts over the past 2000 years you get uh Benjamin Dykes giving a, a historical treatment of this very interesting sort of location for astrological med- magical texts in the early medieval period Demetra writing more of a, an academic essay on um a specific uh botanical or astrological uh sort of medical quasi medical text uh, yeah, it just ended up working out really well in terms of the sequence of each of the essays. Awesome.
1: Yeah, I'm going to give 95 um, percent of the credit of that uh, for that to Dan.
0: Okay, brilliant. He's
1: done. I mean, he's a publisher and he's put together several other anthologies, and so he has a you know a, a sense of, uh, <laughs> of what
0: what order the tracks should go in. Right, and and, and just returning back to that because it's so interesting in this new era of publishing that sometimes you do have these smaller companies doing really interesting work and three hands press has become one of those um and one of the ways in which this book really stands out is just in terms of the layout and the design and the typography and everything is really beautiful and they're also following kind of a unique model that they've kind of pioneered it seems like over the past few years where a limited number of copies has been printed up for the first run even though we're in the era of like Print on demand, where theoretically you could, you know, keep printing innumerable copies or what have you. They actually did print a a limited edition run of paperback, but also some special hardback versions of this book, right? Absolutely. Okay. So how does that work? Just, you know, because some people might not be familiar with, with that, how that goes in terms of the limited run. There's the sort of standard paperback, which is what I got, which is beautiful, but also there are some special editions um, that can be bought as well?
1: Yeah, there's a, uh, there's a standard hardcover. And then there's, a, and I, I believe, 500 of the uh, standard hardcover were printed. And then there's a, a deluxe hardcover, which is, you know, it's beautiful. It's quarter bound in black goat with marbled papers and slipcase, And there are only 50 of those. Or there were 50 printed. I don't know
0: how many there are now. Right. And you guys did something similar with the Deccan's book where there was like a limited super high quality edition of just like 36 copies that were printed at one point, right?
1: Yeah. And those were, um, yeah. And there's one for each Deccan and those were also bound in goat. Those were, we went full golden goat for that.
0: (laughs) Okay. And that's sort of drawing on that sort of more from the magical tradition of like grimoire books and that have like these super elaborate sort of special editions, right?
1: Yeah, well the idea is um you know I, I, the the idea that uh three Hints press as well as several other um uh, well a select uh, few other publishers embrace is the idea of talismanic publishing that you know you're making you're making um the the book is the is the body for the spirit of the book and so that attention should be paid to the book's construction and materials and all of that that you know treating the the creation of the book as
0: inherently talismanic right brilliant all right um I'm trying to think of any other preliminary things but i think those are the the main points people can get the book i should mention since we're still relatively early on at the publisher's website which is threehandspress.com or you can get it through amazon i'll put links to the book on the description page for this episode where people can click to get the book on either of those websites. Um, why don't we get into the core topic, though? Um, one of the questions I had right at the beginning is, how does one define magic? And and what definition of magic, if if we can define it, are we using here if this is a book on astrological magic? Right. So-
1: I think I'm going to try to sidestep defining magic as a whole, mm-hmm. but instead, um, uh, in favor of defining astrological magic. Okay. <laughs> right. Sure. Um, so with astrological magic, I would say the main thing is that you, in order to create an effect or a change, um, which could be external in one's life, right? You know, um, getting that job or, you know, uh, becoming wealthier or, you know, whatever, any of the desires that people have always had that they have um, either taken mundane action uh, in order to succeed at or have taken ritual action to achieve, Um, any of these things. You know, people always want the same thing uh, or the same range of things. And so if magic is trying to make that happen externally, um, magic is also people have internal goals. Wanting to feel a certain way, right? And so, internal, a successful internal change, I think we can also put within the parameter of magic. And so, with astrological magic, we're using the potency of the stars and the planets in order to achieve those things. Whereas, you know, if we were looking at, we could contrast that with, say, grimoire style magic. Where you are summoning a particular entity, um, angelic or otherwise, and then uh, trying to get that entity to do the thing for you, uh, to make the change for you. Whereas, or, you know, there's a, obviously there's a a, a giant history of, of necromancy or try, of trying to get the dead to do things for you or to tell you things, right? And so with astrological magic, we're not drawing on... Um the dead or angels or demons or fairies, or you know any of the other as mm, should we say spirit classes we're drawing on the power and intelligence of the planets and stars, so that's the fuel as it were, and that's um uh I think addressed well in John Michael Greer's essay, which is you know the sources of power in medieval and modern magic, where is the power supposed to be coming from? right there's the there's the machine you know there's the technique of the ritual which is in its own way a machine but then what's powering that right what's the gas
0: right that was actually a brilliant essay he's an amazing writer and i sort of vaguely knew that but rereading that or reading that essay uh over the past few days has actually really reacquainted me with it it was one of my favorite essays from the book in a way in a field that's kind of hard hard because there's so many good essays um so I mean,
1: I just was. I'm really glad you like that one. Um, We were debating whether to do a shorter or or like to keep it its original size because it's pretty long, or maybe do a cut down. And we decided to keep the whole thing. So I'm glad that uh, you really enjoyed that. So that essay um, came out of I asked uh, John because um, he's done so much different magic and done been involved in so many different things. He has has so much experience. I, I I asked him for a reflection on translating the pica and thinking about you know that style of magic um in and comparing it and contrasting it with everything else he's experienced i thought that would be really interesting and he uh he liked that and uh delivered a, a a lengthy a lengthy and excellent reflection on that topic
0: yeah and it seemed like his primary access point was the realization that the way that ancient people conceptualized like the cosmos was different. It was actually interesting because he he makes a really important point that's funny because it it goes against like a core point that I made in my book, where in my book, I tried to say it, on Hellenistic astrology, I tried to say, you know, life today and the the concerns that people have are not are not that different compared to what they were two thousand years ago. It's like people still care about their relationships, their their finances, their their family members, their career, and what have you, and in that way. So, sort of access point for understanding ancient astrology and why it's still relevant today. Um, He very early on in his essay, though, argues from the other perspective, which I thought was really refreshing and interesting, which is he was saying the cosmological outlook and the way that ancient people understood the world was so radically different in some ways that we can't actually fully conceptualize it ourselves. And he actually tried to convey that a little bit just by explaining the different cosmologies and how different how radically different the cosmology was and how radically different their understanding of how everything in the world is and how it could work or how things like magic could be possible within that context and i thought that was really interesting and refreshing
1: yeah well and i think that uh, that's good yeah i'm really um uh one of the things i really depended on that essay to do was to sort through and discuss some of the key uh, paradigmatic concerns that come with even taking on the topic of astrological magic and i you know I think he did a really nice job, and so i 'm glad i 'm really glad to hear that you got that out of it um, but uh, sort of like a point of reconciliation between those two points of view you know i, I if if we read um literature of any sort from two thousand years ago or a thousand years ago, people are definitely um Similar, right? They still like, they want love, they want, uh, they want this, they're afraid of that. But the paradigm, the world in which you set your human experiences changes the meaning of those human experiences. You know, if, if you think about, um, the way that you view the same, the same, how should we say, um, if you think of if you've ever gone through a big paradigm shift in your own life, um, the way that that changes the meaning of your of the same experiences, right? Before and after astrology, for example, <laughs> right. or before and after magic for me, or both. or you could liken it to a you know uh, to a religious conversion, which is sort of one of the most um well-known paradigm shifts or uh leaving a religion right the same human experiences mean something in some cases radically different
0: right yeah and and that was really important in terms of setting up the context for i mean he tried to make a, an argument very early on that modern the way that modern um practitioners of magic treat the subject is not necessarily the same as it was treated or viewed a thousand or two thousand years ago, and astrology is a large part of that because astrology was much more integrated into the culture a thousand or two thousand years ago and was less so after the seventeenth century uh, i I think was one of his main points that he sort of established that essay with right yeah yeah okay so how how where does that come in because that's one of the things maybe we should get out of the way right from the start is that. In modern times, astrology and magic are not necessarily intertwined. And it seems like the astrological community and the magical community have been largely separate. uh, So that, you know, most practitioners of astrology or most professional astrologers we know don't practice magic or don't really know anything about magic. And most practitioners of magic, I don't know if this is accurate, you'll have to correct me if it's not, don't necessarily, aren't, aren't terribly well versed in astrology necessarily, right?
1: Yeah, that's increasingly less true, but that's that's the case we're working from. Um, it was much more true, let's say, ten years ago. I remember going to the first astro, uh, the first esoteric book conference, which is all magic, basically, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in Seattle in two thousand eight, and talking with uh, practitioners. And, you know, very, very few of anybody was interested in astrology or saw it as being potentially relevant to their process um, or to their practice. Um, But that's, and I have been mm, trying in small and in some cases, large ways to bridge that gap, you know, for those last 10 years, because I would, you know, I've been a practitioner of magic and uh, astrology, you know, I've been both the whole time. Um, And so it's been really nice to see that beginning to seriously change. And maybe that's generational to some degree, and maybe it's just sort of time for that. You know, there's one consequence of the uh, traditional revival, the translation movements um, in astrology is that we've gotten to see the history of astrology much more clearly, and as Lee's um, essay I think illustrates, when you can see the history, you see all of the intersections. And what's interesting is that at the same time that that tr- uh, traditional revival um, happened and has been happening in astrology, almost exactly the same thing was happening in magic. People were getting really into um, older grimoires. Um, there is a, a it, there's it, in the the two communities are very parallel, at least in the, um, the English-speaking world um, over the 20th century. The uh, uh, the, uh, the single biggest influence on magic in the 20th century was the Golden Dawn, which is a late 19th century magical lodge. And so, you know, sort of Victorian Edwardian. Um, and then everything kind of went from there. But and just like with astrology you know it was the mm, sort of like late 19th century theosophists and a few other people that you know put astrology out there um and that's what people thought of, that that's what astrology was for people um but in the in the case with the case with both fields over the last 20 years has been looking at what happened before that right and going literally as far back and you you know I don't know if you're aware of this but um just like in so just like in astrology if we're looking at history you have people who are really interested in the medieval and renaissance period you have that with the grimoire magicians and then people are also really interested in the hellenistic era well that's totally been happening with magicians as well people are really Um, the 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 Greco-Egyptian magical papyri um, has been a a hot thing. (laughs) It's you know because the that's the astrology and magic happened. A lot of it happened in the same places, and so you end up you know you end up in Alexandria, but you know maybe looking for sorcerers rather than uh, rather than looking for astrologers. Um, But you end up in
0: Alexandria regardless, right? And that's so funny and interesting because that's. That that would be the case in terms in modern times, because like with modern astrology, I guess the part of the point is that modern astrology, even though in in like the early and mid twentieth century, astrologers inherited some small pieces of the earlier tradition. They then sort of created a a system anew or a new system of astrology and infused it with a lot of modern psychological and and social and and sort of new age concepts in order to create something that was very unique and kind of reflective of the times. And even though astrologers often would sort of um, reference the long history of astrology, and they would sort of assume that the way that they're practicing astrology is largely the same as it's been for thousands of years. In reality, once um, scholars started producing translations of older texts, which astrologers didn't have access to until recently, it became clear that the modern versions of astrology were very different than uh Than it was practiced like a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago, or what have you, and so one of I guess John Michael greer's points in his essay was that there's a similar thing in the magical community where the the magical practitioners of magic in modern times often assumed that the way that they were doing magic was the same as the way it's been practiced for like thousands of years. But in fact, when you go back and start comparing it's not actually quite the same. And, yeah, and one of the one of the major differences is the extent to which astrology was integrated into many of those older forms of magic.
1: Yeah, there were um even, even when you're doing uh even for a number of different uh types of magic that are not explicitly astrological, aren't using astrology as the power supply, there's still timing. They're still like, oh yeah, yeah. You know, like in the PGM, for example, uh the papyri Greco Magic Eye, um the um they're like, oh yeah, yeah, Moon and Libra is great for necromancy, right? Um for this you want to do that on the fourth day of the moon and you know when the sun's setting. Um you know for this, you know it's not they're not it's not the same sort of deep electional stuff that you get with explicitly astrological magic, but um there are very few grimoires that don't have um uh, elements of astrological timing.
0: Right. So Um, and one of the things you used a keyword earlier that I really liked, which was intersections, like the intersections historically between astrology and magic, because they are kind of different things, but they have this tendency to, to overlap, um, at different points in history in major ways, even though they are things that could be practiced and often are practiced completely independently, right?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, there's, um, you know, it's, it's a Venn diagram situation. Okay. Right. There's a significant overlap, and then there's you know astrology without magic and magic without astrology. Um, but you know some of and one of the places of overlap is in practitioners. You know um, Sibley. You know for whom the Sibley chart for the United States is named had one of the biggest um, magical libraries in England at that time. Right. Yeah. I, I don't even need to bring up John Dee.
0: <laughs> so that's um, Ebenezer Sibley from like the uh, 18th century. Hmm. Um. Yeah. So that and that becomes and that's one of the things that Lee's essay focuses on is different. Every once in a while, you'll get a person in the history of astrology who wrote a significant astrological work, but then also had. Let's say a large uh, mad library of magical texts, or who also did something significant, or addressed the topic of magic or astrology and the magic at the same time.
1: Yeah, well, and I think that um, it, it's a so it's an it's an interesting thing. I think that astrology has clung to how should we say, just like a scrap, a pebble of legitimacy <laughs> um, for this last couple hundred years. That magic did not, uh, like you know, whatever you know, it's sort of like in terms of what is either stupid, um, you know, either considered a pseudoscience or ignorant, um, or potentially, you know, soul corrupting from a judgmental, um, and limited religious point of view. Like astrology gets a lot of that, but magic always got it worse, um, because magic has this because with magic, you're dealing with. Um you're dealing with the question of power, right? Um the power to change something. And so power is inherently more threatening than divination. Sure, you know, divination is its own power, but it's not the ability to directly exert. And so, you know, in both societies that believe in magic and don't believe in magic, it's always um sidelined to some degree.
0: Right. I mean one of the ways I tried to formulate it when I was reading the book or that the issue was formulated in my mind was that the basic issue is once you know the future via astrology which is basically the purpose of astrology for the most part what do you do about it and Right well, yeah
1: that that's and that's exactly I so um and you feel free to disagree with me here but I um for me at least um reintegrating the magical side of astrology into astrology um, cre- it, it, fe- it feels like a restoration of astrology. It's like, well, you know this, now what do you do with it? And I, I think in many ways, astrological magic, especially at the point where it intersects with uh, remediation, um, gives you the ability not to just diagnose, but then to prescribe a course of action
0: yeah I mean, that was always I mean, historically in the Hellenistic period, just thinking about primarily the period that I'm most familiar with, which is like the earliest phase of the Western tradition that's recognizably Western astrology that uses you know birth charts, especially with planets, signs, houses, and aspects, and that that fourfold system that came together in the first century b c e in the Mediterranean, yeah, it's like you you had different approaches because sometimes you did have a purely stoic approach. And most of the astrologers tended to echo that approach, which was simply that the purpose of astrology is to gain foreknowledge of the future in order to better understand the things that you have to accept about your fate in order to be forewarned. And basically from a stoic perspective, just learn how to accept those things ahead of time. So you're not completely caught off guard when they happen. And that's kind of it for at least for some astrologers, that was it. And it's like, there's a period there and that's the end of the sentence, and that's the purpose of astrology. But there were other people where, and there were other traditions of astrology where, for example, there was medical astrology, which was used to diagnose but also sometimes to treat medical issues. Um, And then as you said, there was remedial measures, which is the branch that takes a different approach to astrology, which is more like these are the indications for what you have for, let's say, positive and negative things in your life or in your birth chart or in your future. But here are the things once you know that have that knowledge that you can do in order to mitigate or counteract or basically alter the future or offset it and change it so that the tra- trajectory is different than what it would be otherwise if you didn't intervene.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's the um, I, I guess I remediation is a good word, but there's also um, you can also think of it as optimizing. Mm-hmm. right because there's also well you've got this good thing you know turn that up to 11 right, right. <laughs> um but yeah and so it's optimizing in the sense that you're trying to minimize the difficulties augured and maximize the you know the the desirables that are uh, equally or similarly augured but yeah i think I, th- I think that's really important that when you look at the hellenistic material you can really see both of those streams and it's a little harder i think to see the more remedial in some of the Hellenistic texts, because there's a little bit of a first rule of fight club is you don't talk about fight club with magic in most cultures, like people believed in magic um in that time period. that doesn't mean that everyone was totally cool with sorcerers right <laughs> right legally and or otherwise. Um, and you know, as I, I've I've brought up a number of times, you can see with Fermicus, for example, um, where he'll edge up against a, a, a type of knowledge which was um, received in secret, maybe you know, maybe part of a, a mystery cult thing that he was part of, um, and then he'll be like, yeah, and we can't talk about that. Um, and you wonder, it makes you wonder how many people were just not even bringing it up. You know, with Fermaggus in particular, I'm talking about his section on the Deccans, where he's like, oh yeah, you know, this is how you this is how you figure out the dignity and this is how this works. Oh, and by the way, there are 36 invincible gods living here to which everything is subject, but we're not going to talk about that right now. <laughs> right?
0: Yeah, or, or sometimes political things where he would say like fate controls everything and, and once you know your birth tr- like astrology, you can make predictions about anybody's life. And know the future and know their fate and then he says, except for the emperor, nobody can talk about the emperor's birth chart and then that's the end of it and he moves on.
1: Yeah, yeah no I actually reread that the other day. Um, yeah that's some um, that's some pretty epic ass covering right <laughs> but I uh, mean it's good advice, especially you know what because what he's fourth century right they'd had some crazy emperors by the time they got to the fourth
0: century. Right. Well, and, and Firmicus was living in a time that was important, a important turning point, both for astrology and magic, where the empire was transforming into a Christian empire, where Christianity was officially taking over in Firmicus's lifetime when, when Constantine legalized Christianity that Ended up having a negative sort of side effect for both astrology and magic. And that was one of the points that was interesting in Lee's essay that made me realize how intertwined, even though they were oftentimes separate disciplines, astrology and magic that would overlap or intersect, that often their fate became the same in different eras where, you know, if astrology was flourishing, magic was also sometimes flourishing. And when astrology was taking a hit or going underground or being pushed underground again, then magic was also oftentimes doing the same thing. Yeah, very much. You you find them in the same spaces. Sure. So circling back around then, part of the it's like in natal astrology, especially in the Hellenistic period, there's so much of a focus on fate, and often the philosophy is so stoic in orientation that the astrologers like Valens or Firmicus are often just saying that the purpose of studying your birth chart is just to figure out your fate so you know what to accept. But the place where that's oftentimes and where magic seems much more relevant is within the context of another branch of the four branches, which is electional astrology, which I think most people would agree is probably the most magical of the four branches of the astrological tradition. And that seems like the area where magic both philosophically and practically speaking often becomes the most relevant um, within the context of electional astrology. Would you, would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I think that's deeply
1: true. So two points on that. Um one, um there's no astrological magic without um very precise elections. <laughs> like that's what you need. Like you there's literally um, a rigorous protocol for doing any astrological magic that's an electional protocol. And then two on a bigger, broader, deeper, older level, um if we're if we look at what human beings have been doing with um, timing via the sky—they um, have been timing ritual. Um, they've been timing, you know, religious, magical, spiritual, whatever you want to call it, observance and ritual um, by the sky, by the stars, for lo- as long as we have ev- Any evidence of human beings building things, right? Like Stonehenge is <laughs> Stonehenge is geared to a certain part of the sky at a certain part of time. The pyramids, all of the um, Göbekli Tepe. All of these oldest structures that we have are sky aligned, right? Mm. And that means that you and but and they're sky aligned so that this you know this these you know this star um, comes through this gate at this time of the year, which is the time when you're supposed to do the blah 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 ritual, right? So that like that intersection between electional timing and ritual is as old as anything we know about human beings.
0: Right, and even um like the the Deccans, for example, in Egypt, there's this funny debate that happens sometimes in the academic sources where they argue about whether or at what point the Deccans started being used in an, for astrological purposes in the Egyptian tradition, but that very early on they were using the Deccans in order to time um certain like religious rituals at night and, and this question about whether that's Already an astrological or a magical use of the Deccans going back to like 2000 BCE.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, it is. I, I think it's important to both appreciate the the time depth and scope of electional in a loose sense, but also to differentiate when this star rises. You know, when this star rises immediately after the sun sets at this time of year, we do this mm-hmm. versus you know doing hard electional like we would like all right we want the ascendant with a benefic on it uh this planet needs to be in its exaltation or rulership its ruler needs to be good if it's uh, in its exaltation you know like that <laughs> like that that kind of picotri- like that what we would recognize as electional
0: sure um but it still it's like philosophically goes back to and this is where it seems like electional opens up astrology potentially to that intersection between astrology and magic. And going back to that question of once you know the future, what do you do about it? And and part of the purpose of electional astrology, it seems like from very early on, from like the 1st century CE where we have one of the earliest electional texts that survives from Dorotheus of Sidon, he has instructions for if you want this outcome, or if you want this result, then, then initiate the action at a time in which the planets and the stars are aligned in this way so that you're almost deliberately trying to, to manipulate or to, um, sort of pick what the future will be based on starting at a, a moment when the stars are aligned in a specific way. And there's like an element of almost choice or, or, or sort of free will or whatever you want to call it that's built into that the basic assumption of what you're trying to do there on the one hand so it's it's like the an approach to astrology that makes room for free will but also an approach to astrology that says that astrology works in such a way that you may be able to control to some extent or to manipulate the future if you're simply aware of and you pay attention to and you make deliberate choices about when to act yep exactly and, and that's so, very similar, essentially, to magic. Then, and that's where you start getting major overlaps, basically, right?
1: Right. Well, and the idea is, okay, so if you have some power to choose, right, then how do you maximize that? And you know, one thing that's interesting, just in this, uh, in the context of uh, the Hellenistic era, um, you know, there is a uh, there is a tremendous belief in fate. Um, and because of that, there, there's also a tremendous effort to figure out how to get around that. Um, <laughs> if you look at what the Gnostics were doing, what certain Gnostic sects were doing, and what we have evidence that some of the magicians during that time were doing, there's a lot of like trying a- appealing to powers which were thought to be above fate or above fate or astral fate is you know how it's often translated. Right to figure out, you know, to, uh, again, yeah, to uh, to make good uh, or to rise to the level of powers which are situated above what the planets decree.
0: Right, because the planets became closely by the Hellenistic era by the first century BCE. Let's say the planets became associated with fate and became interchangeable with fate, and that was that why I actually subtitled my book. Hellenistic astrology the study of fate and fortune because part of my thesis was that Hellenistic astrology became the primary tool with which that people used to study the the fate of an individual in general but then you're right there became once Hellenistic astrology got really huge there was this interesting sort of philosophical and religious and f- sort of metaphysical pushback from different traditions that sought to try to teach you how you could um free yourself of fate, how you could get out of the control of fate or out, out from under the control of the planets and therefore change your future and change your life rather than just accepting it. Uh, right. And well, th- and
1: I I think... um Actually, sorry, go ahead, finish your point.
0: I was going to say just that so then you, you're right that then there were many different like magical and philosophical and sometimes occult traditions that tried to address that. But then interestingly, it's like one of the... I've read There's been some treatments like over the past century, but especially in the past decade or so of early Christianity. And one of the like underlying things that seems really evident to me, and people are very careful about mentioning it, but it seems really clear that a lot of the early versions of Christianity, that one of the things that was really appealing to Christian about Christianity to people living in the Roman Empire in the first few centuries, is it is it said that if you do this if if you accept christianity you can free yourself from fate and and so one of the interesting like weird historical i don't know it's not paradox but interesting little historical truths potentially is that part of the reason that astro that, that christianity became as popular as it did is it provided a sort of alternative to astrology and the conceptualization of fate that was was so prevalent in that time period
1: yeah, absolutely. And you um, you know, the names of some of the prominent archons in early Gnostic Christianity are the names of the planets. Right. The, you know, the um you know, the controlling powers which keep you stuck in the demiurge's flawed creation are the planets. <laughs> and so, you know, they're there are a variety of basically rising above and through the gates of the planets to get beyond the planets. And right so and and you can see some of that echoed even in uh even in the initiatory structure of the golden dawn and golden dawn derived traditions like Crowley's Thelema where there's a tree of life structure where the uh, uh most of the spheres are associated with planets and the progress of the initiate is through those spheres and beyond them right out to the sphere of the fixed stars and beyond and so we have this you know this Persistent attempt to try to access um, access a
0: truth or a power beyond that of the planets, right? And and so some of that was like sort of philosophical and religious, but then there was this other undercurrent that was more practical in in the magical tradition. And that sort of brings me back actually to a question I wanted to ask you, which is the question: Then is electional astrology inherently magical? because I think you could maybe argue that either way, but I think you you might argue that it is or would you argue that it's inherently magical?
1: Um, I think you could argue that either way. It really depends on which term you want to use for magic. You know, part of the problem why everybody uh, has to define magic whenever they're talking about it is because it's a complicated uh, it's a complicated, complex thing uh, set of things and it re- we really need a better vocabulary <laughs> right you know if if um if you've never seen snow one word for snow is enough but if you lived in wisconsin growing up like i did you want to know that you want to have a word for slush versus like light fluffy snow versus like heavy wet um and so you know with magic it's not one simple thing and so because we're we're kind of stuck in Most conversations using an imprecise term, we have to keep redefining it, (laughs) and so by some definitions, yes, it is, and by by other definitions, no. But it's certainly like its intersection with magic, both philosophically or it's you know philosophically, theoretically, and practical. Practically is right there.
0: Sure, I I mean to the extent, I guess, I guess I'd say if you're, it depends on what you're using electional astrology for, but if you're making the basic presumption that people have free will, that you can use the planets and you can use timing in order to change the outcome or manipulate the outcome and make it different than it would be otherwise. There's a lot of overlap there with with the same presumptions that people that are involved in in magic are are making and sometimes using the same things. I guess there is probably a, a version of electional astrology that's not like that though, where sometimes with Dorotheus and some of the early Hellenistic authors, it seems like they're more using it purely for prognostic purposes, in order to say if somebody initiates this action at X time, then this will be the outcome. And you're just using that purely to make predictions, you know, about the future based on when people initiate things. And it's not actively using it in order to attempt to control or manipulate the future so much as just to to know the future. But to the extent that if you are and and much of the later Electional tradition did use it in order to to actively change things or c- control things in some way that seems like more of a something closer to a magical application than than anything
1: yeah, well, and in the sense that most of the time i almost a hundred percent of the time when we're talking about magic, we're talking about um exerting indirect control over a situation, right like there's no reason there's no direct causal link between. I burn some incense and say some words in my room and my finances improve, right? And there's no direct link between, oh, I started this book at 2.30 on a Tuesday rather than I started it at 4.30 on a Wednesday. Yet, you know, the imp- the idea is that um, the action has an effect on the endeavor, right? Or the situation. So if, if we're... Do- if we, if we do a, a indirect power or control definition of magic, then,
0: uh, electionals most certainly magic. Sure. And does that, I mean, does the conceptualization of like in, in modern like psychological astrology, let's say astrology is often conceptualized within the context of, of something like synchronicity, where there's like an, an a causal sort of correlation between celestial movements and earthly events and the, Sort of cliche analogy that's often used is that just like a, a, the clock on the wall says that it's, you know, eight o'clock at night right now, but it, the clock itself is not the cause or the reason that it's eight o'clock at night is just reflecting what's actually what time it is that the planets are similarly just reflecting what's happening on earth or happening in your life for whatever reason, even though they're not causing it. Does do, does astrological magic make the presumption that astrology is more causal in nature or that there is some power or or influence that the planets have or is that you know something that's even open for for debate or where there's disagreements about
1: yeah i i would say the implication is that there there is some type of causality um obviously a, m- a more subtle causality a causality where you know where we can't see the links of the chain at this level, um, but it would be very difficult to to argue magic from a purely synchronistic point of view. Um, you know, like obvi- maybe there's a way to get there, um, but if if ma- if the magic works and if electional works, then um, I think that synchronicity is not enough of a model. It, it's. Uh, I think. I think the synchronicity piece is a piece, but I don't think it's enough.
0: Right. I think that that makes sense, and and that's where obviously there's a lot of overlap in terms of the astrological tradition, especially in the medieval period, or from the time of Ptolemy onwards, where there was more of a causal conceptualization of astrology and some of the magical traditions in the medieval period, which were trying to conceptualize um the sort of the force or the energy or the the effect of the planets and there you would see astrology uh, or magic sometimes as a as a result of like a natural I forget the term that was used but it was used a few times in the book in different essays but like as a nat- not a natural science but sort of a natural phenomenon in some ways
1: yeah they call it natural magic or natural philosophy and right. that's part of how Agrippa got away with writing about astrological magic. It's like, no, 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 dude, we're not summoning spirits. That's poof, that's you know that's a bridge too far. We're just making use of the natural, you know, the 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 structure of God's creation, right? You know, the world world set up this way. Just like you can make use of the the weight of a rock uh, to keep your papers from blowing away, you can make use of the the power of Mars, you know, to do X, Y,
0: and Z right and and that's how some of the like Christian astrologers and theologians during the medieval and Renaissance period sort of got away with it, or that was the rationalization that astrology had power or the planets had the power to influence like the body and the physical world, but that our our spirit or our soul was still free, and that as long as astrology was only dealing with like natural or or physical matters like as an extension of medicine or natural science that it was acceptable to the church, but that if it started to diverge and go into other areas then it it became problematic with sort of church authorities
1: yeah and you know and from a paradigmatic level you know the astrology the you know the uh the the power of the 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 planets and stars was one mysterious force among many you know they didn't have a they didn't have this presumption to know everything and so, you know, is it really that different? It's a little bit more interesting than the, you know, the, the uh uh the force of gravity, right? <laughs> but it's again, it's one mysterious force among many. Sure. And so I mean, in terms of what I think the asked astro- a lot of the astrological actually I got a couple things to say. So one, that makes you, you talking about the rationale of um church fathers or medieval church fathers, uh the scholasticists. Um makes me think of the Hygromantia, um, which is I think a fort it's either fourteenth or fifteenth century uh grimoire. And in that there are prayers to the planets, um, you know, their planetary conjurations, and they're all addressed as God set you in your course to do this, 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 and this. Um, you know, um, hey, remember, you know, in and sort of, how should we say, by praying to powers above the planet that are nonetheless responsible for its power, doing a little bit of a like, give me nice things and don't hurt me, which um, resonates with um, uh, the conception uh, in some uh, schools of Vedic astrology that, which is, well, it's in the Brihat, um, Parashara, Horashastra um, that all of the planets are incarnations of Vishnu. The Vishnu, the sustainer, incarnated as all the planets at once in order to keep the universe going and to you know to manage things, right? To manage things here on Earth, um, but they are you know they are I should we say single embodiments of or avatars of a power which is superior to them, right? Is, so because you know uh, you know religions and different spiritual models, they're always trying to have to figure out how to. How to recognize the planet's power without making the planets their only
0: gods? Right. Well, and that, that actually becomes one of the primary issues, or became one of the primary issues with like astrology and, and Christianity or some of the monotheistic religions is that it really a lot of the magical astrological traditions end up hearkening back to uh, different polytheistic societies, like in Mesopotamia. And these views of the planets as being, being gods and being alive or ensouled or being intelligent in some way. And you still in, in the medieval period, it seems like in some of the astrological magical texts, some of which, like in Ben Dykes's essay, he, um, gives some translations, which is actually a really fascinating part of the book is he actually translates some excerpts from some astrological ma- magical texts and, one of the the points that's made, and and one of the points actually that you make in your essay, is just that the the planets and the stars and other celestial bodies are treated like entities that are alive and intelligent, and that you can interact with or have some relationship with in some way.
1: Absolutely, yeah. there the unstated implication of a lot of that material is um, a, a worldview that is at least in part. Um, What we what we might call animist that you know we are not that human beings are not the only points where mind and spirit intersect with matter, Um, and that you know uh, it's easy to extend that to animals, but you know the and and this is actually you know this is actually built into a lot of medieval stuff, right? You know you've heard of like oh you know human beings have a rational soul and an animal soul and a vegetative soul. Well, that means that they are vegetative souls <laughs> right uh or in even a mineral soul and this is um the mm, worldview inherent to alchemy as well as a lot of other things, but you know in order to get the planet's attention in order to you know uh create a talisman or to do a a a, a, a conjuration or approach for a specific purpose. You you know, you talk to the you know, the the conjurations are written, hey you. I know you, you're like this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um
0: addressing the planet itself directly.
1: Yeah, yeah. And in my experience, you get a huge response when you do that at the right time. It's um um
0: quite overwhelming. Sure. So the, the premise then is that there's sometimes when if you do it at the appropriate astrologically auspicious time or let's say in this context astrologically auspicious means a time in which that planet is is prominent and well placed astrologically let's say in a chart or in the sky that you have a better chance of of interacting or receiving an answer or of uh getting what you want or or getting a response that's favorable that you're looking for
1: yeah exactly. Well, and you know it's it's um, the other side of a coin that we're already familiar with as astrologers, um, which you know that certain planets have way more influence at certain times, right? Mm-hmm. If you know, and so and we interpret that in natal charts, you're like, oh, Saturn was rising in Capricorn as this person was born. Saturn had a lot more power during that, that birth moment window. Or when we're doing scheduling, right? Like, you know, we, we <laughs> you and Kelly and I, um, you know, do some light election on all of our podcasts we did for this. We're like, oh, I would like a time where Jupiter is, um, has much more influence and maybe not Pluto or maybe, you know, let's stay away from that Mars. And so, you know, that's just, that's what we're doing. We're figuring out who, you know, which planets have the greatest influence and in a sense will be the most present. At a given time, and then we're using that to connect to them,
0: right? And and it's like astrologers are doing that partially at the, on the most general level, just under the premise that that planet and the qualities we associate it with it will be the most characteristic of that time. So, that if somebody is born with, you know, Saturn Capricorn rising and Saturn on the ascendant, that the the characteristics we associate with Saturn will be more prominent in their life in various ways, but in astrological magic it seems one of the interesting and very specific applications is sometimes there's an attempt to not just use electional to initiate things but sometimes to like capture and to hold the the sort of energy of that moment permanently yeah. well that's the
1: that's the talismanic um
0: right. right and and that seems to be the the area where astrology astrology and magic uh, sort of come together the most thoroughly is is in the the practice or the use of talismans
1: yeah i would I would say that that's kind of the grand art um, because it um the successful creation of a talisman um draws on all of the ritual structure you would use for um you know for various appeals or planetary prayers um, you know it brings in the incense it brings in all sorts of things. You bring all of that in, and then you also bring in your full electional powers. <laughs> because if you're going to keep the power of the planet at that time, um then you are going to, just like with a birth chart, you'll get to see every perfection and imperfection play out for as long as you possess that talisman. Whereas if you do like uh, we call a, a conjuration or an appeal or a call where you're like, yeah, Mars is pretty good. I'm going to do a ritual so that this Marsy thing happens in my life, or I'm going to do a Venus thing for money. Cause it rules my second house and you know, whatever that there, there's sort of a one-off structure. Um, but then there's also, but excuse me, but then there, there's also the talismanic and with a one-off, you just, you're just trying to make one thing happen. It's not permanent. You haven't anchored it in a durable body. Although there are exceptions, most talismans are made of stone and metal, which are the m- most durable things that <laughs> that we encounter right um, a stone will probably outlive you uh, a stone will probably outlive me, and so you've got to be really really thoughtful um about the election because you'll keep the errors and Um, I and everybody else whose practice I know who's been at this for a while have totally made things with side effects that were not acceptable and destroyed the talisman. Um, Be like, oh, I can get away with this. No, you can't. I have a friend who who made a talisman for a very benefic fixed star with Jupiter on top of it, but retrograde mars was squaring that from the ascendant this person and and there is there there's some I won't get into the whole thing but um basically this person within a little bit of wearing it fell down the stairs and broke their leg and couldn't walk for 6 months and it was um easily seen in the election in retrospect and sure. so so yeah it it's you know it, it's saving a moment of perfection um and it's something i've struggled with uh with Well, it's something that anybody who practices the art will struggle with because you're like, no, oh, it's so good. Everything else is so good. It'll be fine. Um, (laughs) But um, you know, I've made mistakes. I've seen people make mistakes. Um, And I'm a little bit concerned when I see um, astrological magic seems to be having a moment and a lot more people are interested. And I see some things on social media and I see the elections and I'm like, oh, don't do that. Like, don't, that's, 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 that's going to have, we, that's, um, this works. And so don't worry about it working or not working, uh, as long as you do the protocol correctly, it'll work. And you're much more, uh, I think because people don't, they don't maybe, they don't really quote unquote believe because they haven't seen it. Cause when you can, when you've just done this a bunch of times and you see what it does and what it doesn't do, you're not believing, you just have knowledge and experience, But when, you know, there's a bit of skepticism for anything, especially for something kind of amazing or magical or miraculous, when you haven't done that, you're like, ah, you know, whatever. It's, you know, maybe it'll do something. Maybe it won't. Let's just do this. And, um, yeah. And I, I, I want, uh, I want people to be more careful with their elections because I see some elections where I know there will be weird blowback and side effects.
0: Right. It's like one of those weird, um, Stories like a, that's like a proverb. I can't think of the right term right now, but of just, yeah, if you're, if you're literally, if your premise is that you're creating a, a chart and you're capturing the energy of that moment or, or whatever it is about that moment that has certain qualities and then you're making it permanent and you're keeping it with you. And that's going to then interact with your life and have some impact on, on altering the course of your life from that moment forward. Sometimes there can be unintended side effects. Yeah,
1: you don't just get what you asked for; you get what that planet is in position to provide.
0: Right. It's like the classic, like the story of like you know the genie, and they grant you a wish, and then you get exactly what you wished for, but there's some like catch to it where it's like literally what you asked for instead of metaphorically or something like that.
1: Um, I would say it's more like. The the genie that which is probably going to be a planet or a star, Mars is like I'm only setting things on fire right now, and you're <laughs> like I would like this this and this, and he's like okay I will set things on fire, <laughs> right? right? Like they're, the the Pikatrix is very clear. Like ask the planets what they can provide at the moment that you're asking, right? Like don't you know the, like the. <laughs> There's like general principle stuff. It's like, hey, don't ask Saturn for Venus things. Don't ask Venus for Saturn things. And don't ask, you know, don't ask Mars for going forward swiftly and uh, swiftly and effectively when it's going retrograde, right? Mm-hmm. Don't you ask what the planets are providing anyway, and then you, you know, you catch that 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 rain in a barrel.
0: Sure. Well and and it's the classic issue that all electional astrologers run into very early on in their studies and their practice of electional astrology, even outside of magical purposes, which is uh that a you there's never a perfect electional chart, that there's always going to be something, even if you have some some great things in the electional chart, there's gonna be some drawbacks or there's gonna be some things that are that could be better or that are problematic and what sort of impact those those negative things are going to have on what you're trying to accomplish or what your goal is. And then secondarily, the issue of how does the electional chart, even if it's a, an amazing election as a standalone chart, how does it interact with your own birth chart? And therefore, how is it going to impact your life in particular, just aside from the electional chart as a sort of thing unto itself?
1: Yeah. And the, what should we say? the degree to which planetary talismans and a person's birth chart interact is interesting because it's not just the, through the birth chart. Um, you'll, you'll get just that, especially, like for example, um, if you um, did a ring when Saturn was in its single degree of exaltation um, in Libra, you're going to get a lot of just global Saturn effects, exalted Saturn effects from that. You'll probably also get a secondary ping uh, on whatever house Libra is for you, and you might also see some. Uh, you might also see it influencing some events um, in wherever, whatever the house, whatever houses uh, Capricorn, and Aquarius end up in. But you will get just the general thing, and in a lot of cases, it it doesn't. Should I should say it doesn't matter that it's it's a secondary consideration, except. When it's right on top of something, like I had um a Mars exaltation uh piece done several years ago, and it just so happens that my descendant is right next to uh is right next to the exaltation degrees of Mars, and it just never sat right with me uh just never really it was never a piece that I could wear or felt like I could. Cohere with energetically. I think that's the only one of everything that I've ever done. Um, And there was nothing. The election is great. It's just that its
0: intersection with my chart is very awkward. Sure. And and that I mean I don't want to lead too far away from the topic of talismans, but just raises some other issues that I meant to ask. Which is one. So do do you think? I mean, just as a general question. So you think? Do you believe that magic works, or you've seen magic work in your own life?
1: Oh, 100%. It's as real as astrology.
0: Sure. And and I ask that just as from an outsider's perspective as somebody that just does astrology and that's all I've ever been into and have never studied uh mo- for the most part the magical or or otherwise occult traditions. Did you so that raises another question in terms of your background which did you get into first, astrology or magic or or was it at the same time?
1: Um, astrology was first by about two years. And so astrology, I think was, I was about 19 and then magic was more like maybe 22, 23 and then mid twenties. I had my, my holy crap. This is real with astrology at maybe 22 and 23. Um, but you know, I've been into it for a while. Um, but you know, it's the like, oh my God, this is like really, really real. Right. um and then i had my holy crap this is real with magic maybe like 25 26 mm.
0: and were they separate things because if you were like you're studying like modern magic that's largely not necessarily astrological in nature and did you have to find your own way to synthesize those or or did you treat them separately for a long time at first
1: Well, the first stuff, I I, uh, this is true for a lot of people. A lot of people who got into magic uh, who are around my age uh, picked up a book called Modern Magic by Don Michael Craig. And there's a bunch of stuff in there and (laughs) to do. And I did a bunch of stuff. And there's a little bit of planetary stuff, but it's basically like Golden Dawn stuff. And so that was very interesting. um, And it did a lot of things. Um, But it really wasn't... And then I also... I don't know. I think mid twenties. I got uh, a book called Planetary Magic by Denning and Phillips, which I think was written in the seventies, um, which is a very twentieth century um, take on planetary magic, uh, and didn't really have any electional requirements, which is a problem. Um, and so a lot of the stuff it would do stuff, but it wasn't like it wouldn't. It didn't create events. It didn't echo outward. Into clear events in my life that you could point at um, the you know the turning point, and I think this is a turning point for astrological magic. Period um, was the publication of the Pikatrix. and um, I got so uh, <laughs> I think I could share this as a story. Um, so I when I first met William Kiesel in 2007 uh, in Seattle, who's the um, the owner of Robros Press. Uh, which had the, um, the 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 Arabic version of the pikatrix or the guy Al Hakim that was the first English translation, and then uh, Warnock and um, and Greer um, published some years later, and they did a translation, a very clean
0: translation uh, do, from do the you remember, Latin. Do you remember what year the Ouroboros version was published? That was like two thousand four or three. Well, or earlier. so the.
1: Books one and two and books three and four were um, published separately. So there's volume one, and I think volume one was around 2004, and volume two was, I believe, 2008. And so, but anyway, when I first met William in the, in, the, in the flesh, he basically, he handed me the first half of the Picatrix, which was all that was published, and he says, I think you'll know what to do with this. Wow. <laughs> And, and so, what year?
0: What year was that?
1: That was uh, 2007. I think that was maybe September of 2007. And okay. s- and so I immediately I went home and I read the whole thing and you know I was like mm, I'm not sure exactly what all this means but I think I get it and I and there was a um, there was this nice Venus election I think I got Venus in Libra on the rising in a trine with uh, the Moon in Aquarius. Um, you know, free from malefic aspect and day and hour and all that. And so I did this Venus thing um, and I was like, all right, what's going to happen. Um, and within the next few days I was given a, a ton, like several hundred dollars of gift certificates to eat at different restaurants. Um, and Kate was given um, uh, Kate got in uh, like an all expenses paid weekend uh, away for, God, I don't even remember what reason. Um, and it, and it also, the, the process of doing it just, I felt suffused with the Venus and Libra energy. I was like, oh, this is amazing. Um, you know, the, the point is not just to make yourself feel a certain way. Um, but that happens along the way. Um, but anyway, yeah, I was like, you know, I just basically hit the Venus and Libra button and literally got cash and prizes. And I was like, all right, let's do more. Wow. and i you know i'd done planetary stuff before but i'd never gotten i'd had interesting experiences and insights into the sphere of venus or whatever but i hadn't gotten like an immediate feedback right from from my external life
0: sure okay so let's talk about that cuz that's really important from a historical standpoint especially if anybody's ever listening to this at some point in the future cuz i think we're, there was an interesting sequence of events and now that you're Book has come out it's an interesting completion of that sequence of events, but there was this like a mythical book, uh, which is the Picatrix, which is like this medieval it was like the medieval text on astrological magic, like the most important and most influential one and um, no modern translations of it existed until the mid 2000s when William Kessel got together with a translator, and they translated it and published, like you said, book one, uh, the first part of it by at least 2004, if not earlier. Because I I actually remember living in Seattle in 2004, 2005, and it had just come out. It was three or four. Three or four, okay. And I met William Kessel actually working in a bookstore in Seattle uh, around that time, and I remember seeing the book. So that book came out, and then the other part came out a few years later. And then- Uh, a few years after that in 2010, Christopher Warnock and John Michael Greer got together and did another translation of the text and published that in 2010 from I think the Latin translation of the Picatrix, right?
1: Yeah. And so the um, um, one way to differentiate them, um, I'll usually just say Latin or Arabic Picatrix, but it was really the Latin that was known as the Picatrix, whereas the Arabic was titled the Gayat al Hakim or the goal of the wise. And they're not um, the Latin is not a straight translation of the Arabic. It is in some places, um, but there are pieces missing, pieces added. There, there it's there there's some meaningful differences if you want to get really nerdy about
0: it. Sure. And there was some sort of catch with those two translations, though, where it was like the earlier one by Ouroboros was translated from the Arabic by an Arabic translator, but there was some sort of issue where he, he might not have been as familiar with the astrology as he could have been. And therefore, if I'm understanding correctly, and I hope I'm not, some people have questioned sort of the fidelity of the translation just, just due to the the translator and their background in astrology versus later Christopher Warnock and John Michael Greer, who both have major backgrounds in magic and astrology, translated the text again from the Latin version which is not necessarily, as you're saying, you know, this, quite the same as the original Arabic version since it's a Latin translation of the Arabic version. Uh, but they had a much more thorough and solid background in astrology and magic, and therefore were able to improve in some ways from, from that perspective.
1: Yeah, it's a cleaner translation in a lot of ways.
0: Okay. So that was a major watershed moment, the, the publication of that text over the course of the past Whatever, fifteen twenty years now, and that's you know provides because that's one of the first times that you get um, a text that was published. I guess up to that point, the only other major text that was available would have been the work of Agrippa, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, and Agrippa, yeah, and uh, I mean, there's some good stuff in Agrippa, but the Pikatrix is the motherload. I don't, uh, I don't think there's any dispute from anyone anywhere about that. It's really what's made the uh it's really what's made it possible for uh, astrological magic to
0: reemerge uh during this time period sure so and and that's also taking place within the context of the broader revival of traditional astrology in general and you have uh you know things like project hindsight translating some of the Greek works in the nineteen nineties but then more recently over the past decade uh Benjamin dykes translating you know, just dozens everything. of- Everything. <laughs> yeah, pretty much everything medieval and Arabic era texts on astrology, which would have been then contemporaneous with the the Picatrix. And that in and of itself revived the practice of traditional astrology or traditional medieval and Hellenistic astrology and Renaissance astrology, which then allows so that there's a a group of astrologers now that are well-versed in traditional astrology and can pick up a text like the Picatrix and actually understand from a technical astrological standpoint what it's recommending and and why it's recommending those things.
1: Yeah, the logic of the elections um, is in most cases crystal
0: clear. Sure. And that text, one of the essays is by Benjamin Dykes, and he kind of talks about the Sort of geographical area that that text came came from, and like the group of people um that that produced it or are thought to have produced it right yeah the uh the sabians of haran right so what's the what's the sort of short version of the story with with them
1: okay uh short version, so Haran no longer exists, there are a few ruins, but it's it's basically right around what would be the syrian turkey border right now mm-hmm. and so during the uh, the period of um, the caliphate period, um, it was just over the border. It was basically just over the border um, from the Byzantine Empire, but it was part of the caliphates. Right now, there are a couple things that we know. One, we know that the the people who lived there um, referred to Hermes as their prophet, and then that was Hermes was syncretized with an Old Testament prophet and so even though they were not uh devout Muslims they were allowed to exist within the caliphate as long as they basically paid the heretic tax right because you know it's not like everybody was forced to convert to Islam during that period it was like it was Islam was in political power but then you were allowed to you were allowed to be of a sect that was of an earlier revelation but from the same current Right. Like the, you know, the, the Jews were recognized as, you know, basically, um, uh, the Jews and the Christians were recognized as having sort of being a legitimate branch of the family tree, just not as good. Right. Um, they hadn't heard the latest news. And so anyway, but so you have the, the Sabians are like, we are Hermeticists. We think Hermes is our prophet. There were a lot of scholars, um, that came over, like basically Platonists, who came over during the um, the purges in the Roman Empire um, when they were getting rid of the the pagans. Who then, you know, who came over and brought Platonic and uh, presumably Greek astrological material to Harran. Um, but what's interesting, what's sort of crucial and fascinating, is that Harran, um, Harran is an ancient ancient place. Um, it was the uh of the in the you know old babylonian structure that was where the temple of the moon was the temple of the moon god and as far as mesopotamian pagan survivals right babylonian which is going to give us this planetary magic flavor already we know that they were all, they were openly celebrating the uh ritual death of tammuz uh every year um so they're you know this is not just um A place that has some history. You obviously have some Mesopotamian, you know, um, pagan survival stuff, which again is explicitly planetary in a lot of cases, mixing with this Platonic Hermetic point of view. And so, of course,
0: right, (laughs) of course,
1: that's where the Pikachu comes from.
0: So you have this this ancient, ancient city that has this like long tradition stretching back to Mesopotamia, where there's still. Even later, even once like the Roman Empire is converted to Christianity and uh, astrology and and uh, magic are on the way out or have reached a low point and are being banned, you have this like ancient city where polytheism or some form of polytheism and planet worship still exists and and is being practiced and is is fully integrated into the culture and into the society in this really unique way and they have different like um sort of buildings set up for each of the planets for for like worship and for ritual purposes.
1: Yeah. I mean it's uh it it's it's amazing that that just existed. <laughs> like that sounds utterly fantastic. Um but that's not that's not like I channeled this information from the Atlanteans. There's lots of scholarly work on this. There's um there's actually a great book on Haran that I think is was it called Temple of the Moon. Right. But uh, yeah, so it, the how um, should we say the point of origination for the Picatrix is as interesting as the Picatrix itself.
0: Sure. So so somehow in that Huron, as you started to say, even when the Roman Empire became extremely hostile towards astrology, some of the the astrologers and some of the philosophers, like for example, after Justinian closed the last remaining. Pagan philosophical schools or some of the last schools, some of the philosophers and the astrologers fled to Haran and ended up settling there or close by. And so you get the last vestiges of what survived of the astrological tradition sort of hold up in this, this city, this town, or this, this area that had this long sort of polytheistic um, astrological and magical tradition and some at some point it, it's thought that it's from that city that this important work on astrological magic survived that or was created the Picatrix.
1: Yeah and what's interesting is some of the more oh I don't know what to say like legitimate or I don't know if mainstream is the right word. Um, the big name uh, Arabic astrologers of that period, they' in their docu- in their uh, biographies, they have like these periods where they spent a few years in Haran and then went, you know, and then went to the big city and hung out with the caliph. Um there they it's it was, you know, it was a go-to spot. It was probably there's probably a little bit of what happens in Haran stays in Haran.
0: Sure. All right. So, um yeah, there's a lot of interesting like cultural stuff and and some of the essays discuss that or discuss Haran and its importance as a sort of cultural nexus. Um you know, during these periods when the the Hellenistic tradition and the Roman Empire is on its way out, and the medieval Arabic tradition is in its is ascending, um, yeah, where so that's the talismanic tradition. I'm trying to think of of what other major magical applications are sort of relevant here, or where we need to go, what we haven't covered so far.
1: I think I'd like to talk about um, Demetra's essay because. It it's magic, but it's it's uh, it's a different style. It's not talismanic, it's not uh necessarily done uh in the style of a conjuration of a planet with burning incense and all of that. It's the astromedical. Right? So Demetra's essay, Demetra George's essay, um is a translation and discussion of uh Thessalos of is it Thales or thales or thales
0: or uh, yeah Thessalus of trails. trails 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 something like that,
1: yeah, whatever um uh, Thessalos, and in uh, so Thessalos' work was one of the earliest um planet herb magic, basically associating um particular plants um with planets and signs, and then um using the you know the we would say magical influence of the planets on those plants. To create medicines of wondrous power. And so here we have an intersection with um an almost medical alchemical approach or a spagyric approach. And what's really funny is um Thessalos gives as sort of the, you know, in his introduction, he's like, Listen, so I went down to he's a Greek guy, he's like, Yeah, I went down to I went down to Egypt to try to get all the secrets as a, you know, <laughs> as happened constantly during that time. I believe uh Valens has his own more bitterly toned recounting of going around Egypt trying to get the secrets. Right. Um, and so he's like, Yeah, and I found, you know, and I I found all of the uh you know, I got the I, you know, I was taught this, like which which herbs with which plants, or excuse me, which herbs with which planets. He's like, and I wrote back home and I was like, I'm gonna do miracles. You guys, you know, hold on, hold on to your seats. And he goes back home and it doesn't work. And so then he goes to Um, and then so, you know, um, well, he goes to the corner to cry and then he does a pilgrimage to the temple of Asclepius, the god of medicine. And, um, so he does this dream incubation, which is common in ish practice in certain temples, especially the temple of Asclepius, where you fast and you do all this and there's ritual and then you sleep in the temple and you have a dream meeting with the god, which gives you your cure or, you know, tells you the answer to your question. Right. And Asclepius is like, he says, listen, Nechepso and Petasiris knew a lot, but their knowledge was not divine. And so they, you, uh, you, you didn't get the complete transmission. The thing that you're missing is the timing of when to pick the herbs which are connected to the planets and signs, because you've got to harvest them when they've got the potency and at that elected moment in order for this to work. right? And Thessalo says, and then I did that and it worked great, the end. Um, and so that's really interesting, um, because again, we have the electional component as what makes the whole thing hum. That's what I said when I was, when I was doing some of the more golden dawn derived planetary magic stuff that didn't have, uh, the electional component. It's not that it did nothing, but the whole thing didn't really spark, you know, it didn't have that obvious, um. Uh, Should we say that obvious echo in real events in my life? And so we have that same sort of thing uh, with the the medical side, which is like, yeah, it's kind of something, whatever. But when you add the election, the right elections to it, then the whole thing just shines.
0: Right. So this is really important in terms of the, you know, another, you know, two fields that were independent fields where you have medicine and then you have magic in the ancient worlds, but where sometimes. Much more often, obviously, than in modern times, there would be overlap between those traditions. And that's another major area. And another major area that runs through the astrological tradition is the application of astrological magic to um, healing as a process for healing and for medicine in general. Um, and that's, you know, this is one of those early texts that deals with that. And it deals with the topic of what it's called it's called like the the hermetic chain of correspondences or something like that like i forget what the common term is for that of you know associating certain planets with certain stones and certain herbs and certain plants and other things like that in order to create um sort of sort of lists of associations
1: right well i mean what you're doing with um a lot of astrological magic that, that's you know the golden chain of being is you're yanking on those chains right like, if you're, you know, if, for example, you're doing a talismanic thing, you need the metal that corresponds to that planet. You need the stone that corresponds to that planet. You're, you need the words that correspond to that planet. You need the colors. You need the plants in the form of incense, which correspond to that planet. For some of them, you need, you know, pieces of an animal that corresponds to that planet. You need the time, the window of time that corresponds to that planet, right? you're lining everything up. Making sure all of the links of the chain are there,
0: right? And and that's really important because that's also here in the Western astrological tradition in like the medieval period, especially, and also in the Hellenistic and Renaissance traditions. You have this close um, interaction between astrology and medicine, and this is where the topic of remediation comes in, and using remediation measures, especially from a medical standpoint, in order to um seek in order to balance out certain things in a person's chart in order to promote um health and and uh, not just healing but health and balance right. and the idea that through things like the concept of the humors or the temperaments that it's when people get out of balance in their basic temperament that that's when um illness can take place or when when negative things can happen physically or in terms of a person's health and so there's this desire to use astrology in order to identify the correct medicines or plants to use in order to bring a person's uh sort of constitution back into balance. And you see a lot of parallels between that in the Western tradition and similar things that were also happening in the Indian tradition in terms of using astrology in that way for sort of medical purposes.
1: Yeah, the intersection of astrology and Ayurveda is a huge thing. Sure. Oh, oh so one thing I just wanted to point out, if anybody has the book um in Demetra's essay, at the very towards the end, she translates um thessalos's healing, not healing his uh harvesting prayer because in addition to picking the right time to harvest the plants, there's also basically like a harvesting prayer invocation um to make that exactly right and you know usually there's a particular kind of knife you know or a knife composed of one substance and not another, et cetera, et cetera. And um, Kate and I have been using that, and it's awesome. You know, because Kate's been, um, Kate, my wife, for those who are not familiar, um, has uh, uh, recently started offering some of the stuff we usually just make for ourselves. Um, And so she's been gathering lots of material. You know, lots of plants and whatnot for different recipes from the yard, um, and so that's even though that's like a part of a scholarly translation, that's also a piece you can use if you do plant magic at all.
0: Sure, and and so this is we have some of that that survives in like the form of modern like an apothecary where you can go and you can buy different herbs and different things, and sometimes some of those people will be knowledgeable about the astrology behind it and which plants are associated with certain planets or what have you.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I just love that. I feel like thessalos is maybe more important than it seems, especially for people who are doing, you know, who are doing plant medicine. I'm I'm not um, really very attuned to the plant realm. I get along well with animals and metal. Uh, <laughs> um, the mineral and the animal work for me. I, I kind of don't get it with plants. Um, but I know I have a lot of people who are amazing herbalists. And I feel like Thessalos is, or the, you know, the publication of translation of Thessalos is, it's sh- sort of putting it back together for plant, uh, astrological plant magic in a way that the Picatrix puts it all together for talismanic magic.
0: Definitely that, that makes sense. and, and your wife uh, Caitlin Kopic, her website is sphereandsundry.com where she's doing some of that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it was it sort of came out of nowhere like two months ago because um, you know we do stuff and people ask me, oh will you make a thing for me or do you take commissions? And the answer is always no. Um, as you know, I don't have enough time to do even what I already do. <laughs> right and you know i do stuff for me and i don't know i just i just don't feel like doing that um but um but anyway you know kate and kate's also just a an excellent craftsperson craftswoman um she's just attention to detail and all that and so for some of the stuff we were going to do anyway she's like i'm going to make a bunch of extra stuff and if people want to buy it they can um and it's gone really well it's been a really interesting set of experiments you know doing only Really careful elections, et cetera, et cetera, um, and yeah, I've been really happy with all of the the results. It's uh, right up. Like, and, and what's it. funny, there's an Asclepius piece, like thread that runs through this. So, Demetra's piece has you know, or Demetra's piece involves basically the transmission from Asclepius um, about plants and planets, and then, uh, on, uh, and then I in my essay just happened to use Asclepius as an example for how you might... because uh, So one of the issues with stellar magic is that you don't have these awesome conjurations in the Picatrix for the different stars like you do for the planets. I mean, you, that would be a whole volume, right? There are a lot of stars. And I was talking about ways you might get around this. And I was like, well, you know, there's some, you know, some stars like uh, Russell Hogg, which is the key star in Ophiuchus, which to the Greeks was Asclepius... I was like, so if you're going to do stellar magic with that star, why don't you just use the Orphic hymn to Asclepius because it's already written, right? Um, and then that was one of Kate's first experiments was let's do some Asclepius stuff, um, which is sort of half reconstructed, you know, um, what did the people who honored Asclepius do? What were the associated woods and flowers and all that? And then half of it, let's line it up with the, primary star in um, in the constellation they called Asclepius. Um, and that stuff, that was probably the like everything so far has worked in the series. It's done It's it's been as it should and done as it should. But that the Asclepius stuff was kind of an experiment because that's not in the books, but it's using the principles. But that stuff was like mind-blowingly great. Um, it just feels, and it was so nice because there's so much Poison this summer. <laughs> you know, it's not a, the trend, the skies are not friendly. And so it's been really cool to have some healing, like heavy healing potency <laughs> in the house.
0: Sure. So, and just reading the description from her website, she says that Sphere and Sundry produces handcrafted small batch talismanic items on rare and potent astrological elections. So it's really reviving, you know, some of that process of using electional charts and using. Magical elections for the purpose of creating not just uh, physical talismans, but also for creating um, herbal uh, sort of concoctions and, and things for the purpose of of healing or, or balancing or other things like that.
1: Right, or like for example, with um, we caught Mars at the um, at the exaltation degree with mm-hmm. uh, with a good supporting moon and nothing interfering month and a half ago. And so you know she did Mars candles, for example, Um, and you you will probably see one in the background the next time we do the uh, (laughs) the astrology podcast. Um, But it's like there there are you know so anybody when they're doing Mars stuff is generally going to have a red candle, and red to a certain degree is going to make it correspond to Mars. But this has got the herbs of Mars. This was literally poured and created after you know after a big conjuration of Mars, while it rose in its exaltation, so it's just doing it bringing all of the tools to bear, and you just get more potent stuff when you bring all of the elements to bear
0: right. I always thought that that was an interesting access point where, on the one hand, it's like in a causal conceptualization of astrology, you could understand that the premise is that you're creating something at a moment when a planet is prominent or or strong or you know whatever you want to call it in an astrological chart and you're literally um conceptualizing it as attempting to capture something about the power of that planet. but then even in a like a causal or an an a causal or almost like a synchronistic view, you're almost cat you're creating something and capturing something about the quality of that moment, even if your premise of astrology is is purely a causal that's almost kind of interesting or or you could almost see how that might work. In the sense of capturing qualities of time. But one of the things that you're doing in order to ensure that you're capturing one thing rather than another is you're trying to deliberately go out of your way to pick certain materials. And in order to use things that invoke a certain planet through the notion that the sort of symbolic, I mean, I don't know if it's maybe it's not purely symbolic, but that the, you know, for in your example, you're using the example of like red that you would want to use the color red or, or, make whatever it is that you're creating red in order to invoke that specific planet and that there's specific herbs that you would use or other materials or substances that you would use that would also correspond to that planet in order to correctly invoke it and and capture it in that moment?
1: Yeah. And also um uh well so yes and one way of thinking about it is you're giving the the spirit of that planet of its potency, you're giving it a body. Right, so yeah. in a sense, you're insouling an object, and so there has to be a body which can host that particular, whatever you want to call it—spirit or power or energy or force. Right, and Mars likes to be in a red body. You meet somebody with Mars on the rising; they're going to tend to be red-faced. Right, you know they're going to like they're going to have more red um, to, to even their skin um, than a person with Saturn on the rising. Um, you know, and so Mars likes red. Um, Mars likes iron. <laughs> Mars likes a variety of things. And so you wouldn't like, we wouldn't pour like sea green, uh, like sea green candles scented with geranium for Mars, right? Those are, that's, that's Venus. <laughs> Venus, uh, the whatever the potency of Venus can live in that. Um, but you know, and, uh, Venus wouldn't want to live in like a red, Uh, the body of a red candle with a bunch of iron filings and hot pepper in it.
0: (laughs) Sure. Um, So to change the subject a little bit, I know we're getting towards the end of this, so I want to make sure, like one of the points I wanted to address or wanted to have you address is a question of because astrology, because magic has not been a a part of astrology for a long time, one of the questions is going to be, how do you deal with astrologers who either that's just not their thing or where they actively don't want it to be astrology to be associated with magic for various reasons. So, for example, for a long time, astrologers might not have wanted to be associated with magic due to, for, for religious re- reasons, let's say due to Christianity or other religions where that's where magic is forbidden. And therefore, astro- some astrologers in the past have gone to great lengths to say that astrology is not magic, that it, it has nothing to do with magic. And you know, that's, that's not it at all to distance astrology from that. Or more recently, and, and that's still going to be relevant. I mean, for some astrologers, especially, let's say that are coming from a, a Christian background, maybe they might have issues with the idea that some astrologers are using astrology for magic. Um, but even more recently in modern times, another relevant issue, or I can think of like a subset or group of astrologers that might have a problem. Is maybe astrologers who would want to or have wanted to distance astrology from magic from the perspective of science and to say that, that astrology is a, is a real phenomenon and that it's scientific or will be demonstrated to be scientific at some point in time and that it, it does not have to do with magic and that they want to distance astrology from magic for those reasons. You know, those seem like relevant concerns or I, I would think that at some point the discussion, that discussion is going to come up as you know people like yourself and and through the publication of this book um some of these practices become more prominent like how that sort of discussion will play out in the astrological community
1: yeah that'll be interesting i i'm i you know i, I don't have a um a single response to that to the variety of angles that you mentioned i mean you know i think right. my, my my response would be critique specific um You know, I would say that astrology only makes sense, only truly fits into a world that is magical, um, and that magic and astrology are just different ways that we can see some of the more subtle functions and connections of the reality in which we have always lived. Um, And that magic…
0: what? That's your explicit, like, theoretical. That that you'd make that as an explicit argument that that astrology does not make sense outside of a context in which something like magic exists, and that the two are co mingled in that way, and that they astrology can work because magic can work, or because we live in a cosmos where something like magic is possible.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, go ahead. Sorry for interrupting.
1: Oh no, yeah, that that's um, and that it's not that astrology fits. One hundred percent within a um, a a materialist conception of reality, but magic doesn't, um, or vice versa. Um, You know they're both rooted in a world that is stranger than uh, than has been recently advertised. Um, There, you know, there are portions of astrology that make sense. um, You know that you can see. If you come from an empiricist materialist point of view, you can catch pieces of them, but that that certainly doesn't explain the whole thing. And even if you know, even if you can have, oh, you can test certain astrological claims statistically and see that there is an effect there of the type claimed. That doesn't tell you why. Um, you there, if if that's the case, then obviously the cosm your cosmology needs to grow beyond the materialist because it doesn't make any sense. You can see it statistically, but that paradigm still doesn't hold it,
0: right? Sure. So part of then, I guess, um your your work or part of what you, I guess, would set out to do, or part of what this book about to some extent, is to revive some of the um traditions and the cosmology and the understandings of the nature of the cosmos that Created a platform in which astrology and magic coexisted and had that intimate relationship, and and re uh, sort of reanimating or bringing some of that back to to the modern world to the early twenty first century.
1: Um, I don't know that I can take that on as a solo project. <laughs> sure, <laughs> it's certainly something I think about all the time. I'm like, okay, you know, I mean, that's we've talked about this. Like, once you understand that astrology works, you're like, okay. There's are some things I don't know about how reality works because it's not supposed to be able to work. And I'm, right. I'm reminded of a quote by Peter Carroll, who is um, uh, an important figure in uh, a, a movement in the 80s and 90s called Chaos Magic. Um, and he said, magic works in practice, but not in theory. And I think that that can mm. be said of astrology as well. You're like, no, it works, but I still don't know why. <laughs> is it synchronicity? Is it this? Is it that? I think it's this. This there's something there. But um and that's because our you know our our cosmological options right now our metaphysics is um pretty um pretty impoverished and so we don't even have we're still scrambling for ways of thinking about things that we can confirm work.
0: Sure yeah I mean, I mean, that's a the the basic sequence is like astrology shouldn't work. we all we all sort of know that going into astrology is like modern people raised in modern society with a basic scientific understanding of the world or at least of what our current cosmology is, where it doesn't really make room for something like astrology to exist, but then eventually you get into it, you realize it does work. And then there's this question of why or how. and different astrologers come to different conclusions about that. But for the most part, one of the that's just one of the weird things about the astrological community is that most astrologers are using this weird technology and they're, they're users of a technology that they otherwise nobody has a, a fully like 100% answer of how it is that something like this is capable of working in the same way that like maybe you could operate like a car or like a microwave without necessarily understanding Exactly how it's doing what it's doing, it, but you just know how to how to use it as a sort of tool.
1: Exactly, and that um, I think a really good metaphor for that um, comes from Gordon White of the Rune Soup podcast, uh, which we've mm-hmm. both been on. So when Gordon's talking about magic, he's like he's like in a lot of cases, it's like in a manual for how to build a UFO. It's alien technology, and if you follow the instructions, you can get a UFO but you still you can fly it around but it still doesn't make sense <laughs> like you don't know why it works right it's not a theoretical treatise it's a how to build it's you know how to build a spaceship and so you can follow it but you know in a sense the mind that designed that system or the minds that designed that UFO are uh, understood things that you don't um right or else you would understand it and so i don't know, i like the uh the blueprint for an alien spacecraft you know it's crash-landed alien technology on a metaphorical level
0: sure um yeah and i mean so so magic and the understanding or some of the philosophy underlying astrological magic becomes one of the ways that astrologers traditionally have understood and attempted to both explain but also use astrology from a from a philosophical and a metaphysical or even a scientific standpoint is this becomes sort of like an explanatory rationale for why astrology works, but also um, to some extent dictates what you use it for and how you use it, and that you're going to use it in order to do specific things rather than, you know, approaching it another way, like the the stoic way or a purely like modern psychological way. The magical tradition provides this other sort of approach that has its own set of philosophies or philosophical and cosmological understandings, as well as a set of um practices or procedures that kind of come along with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, um this is what I do. Uh I don't think um everybody needs to do astrology this way or needs to, you know, come at it um from the same angle, et cetera, et cetera. I, you know, Again this is just like what I was doing anyway and so you know my work grows out of what I'm interested in and what I'm experimenting with and you know what I uh <laughs> what I what I have to share um but you know this doesn't mean that you know uh, magic shouldn't it shouldn't and can't replace for example astrology as a very powerful adjunct to sh- to psychotherapy that's a totally different thing with different goals right um. There are, um, yeah. There's a lot. I, you know. There's a lot of room in astrology. Astrology touches many things, but I, I. It has been important to me to share with people that this is part of what astrology touches. This is part of the larger terrain of astrology, and that if you're interested in this, this is a real thing and a, and a fascinating
0: thing. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think this book, I mean, this book is amazing and every single essay just individually and then also as a as a compilation um really does the best job I've ever seen of any modern or any contemporary um publication in providing an overview of what you know the, the like quote unquote sort of astrological magic tradition is on its own sort of as a as a whole but then also individually what some of the different variations are within it, what some of the different practices and sometimes competing philosophical notions are within that. And um, I've never seen anything like that. And it's for that reason that I think this is a landmark publication in the history of astrology, regardless of even if somebody disagreed with with it or, or, or didn't think that astrology and magic should be um, mixed or that astrology is magic or had a different philosophical approach— I think looking back on this publication it'll be interesting to see how it influences the astrological tradition going forward and I suspect that will it will play a major role in terms of some of the ongoing dialogues about what astrology is and what it's capable of um yeah and and I want to yeah thank you for for putting it together
1: well that's uh that's high praise I think I might have blushed a little bit there <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, I just wanted to say that because even as a spectator who's, as I've said, on the sidelines and mainly just focusing on astrology and not having much background in magic, I can appreciate what this is and what the book represents. And yeah, I'm interested to see where it goes and and what sort of influence it has has on the astrological tradition. And I think it will create a nice foundation for everything that proceeds after this point. Uh, which will be interesting to see.
1: Well, you know, I haven't it hasn't been out very long and I haven't and I haven't had very many conversations with people who've really read through everything. And so I look forward to those, you know, um you know, uh, you're one of the first people who actually read the whole thing and you know, it has it has feedback about it. So it's really it's really interesting to hear cuz you know, you put together I mean, you, you know, you wrote a book, you put you put together what you have in the way that you think is best and then you put it out there but and you you know you hope it will have a certain impact and you've designed it so that it will hopefully have a you know do a certain thing but you never know how people are going to receive and react and what they're going to do with it
0: yeah well i was just i mean i have background in so many of the traditions that people were talking about here that it made it really interesting and sort of enthralling for me as a reader because it's not like it's usually in terms of just publications astrology books often tend to be more practical and you don't usually have like deep philosophical or historical or other sort of treatments of topics so so a book like this is rare and and sort of far between where you have these really interesting deep sort of profound discussions that are happening but also some really great academic scholarship like there's some articles in here that that should and probably will be cited um, in academic treatments of some of these subjects in the future, and to have all that sort of wrapped up in one one book is is pretty notable, and it's very much in line with you know what I try to do with my book and and the type of thing that I like and that I love to talk about here on this podcast. So yeah, so that's the reason that we we talked about it today, and I look forward to seeing some of those discussions about it in the future as well.
1: Yeah, I'm, your question about. Mm the position that astrological magic will occupy within the larger community and you know um uh what possible critiques uh or you know aversion there might be that's interesting i hadn't really thought of i've just been i'm you know just kind of blown away that not that anybody cares but you know this has been like a Uh, Like you said, most astrologers um, don't fancy themselves wizards. And so, um, you know, uh, this is getting a little bit more attention than I thought it would. You know, I thought it was just going to be me and the weirdos in the corner.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, I'm just thinking of it because I'm always thinking of it from a historian standpoint of like different phases and different eras in the astrological community and what groups of astrologers are getting excited about or. Are clustering around in terms of explanations for astrology and attempts to validate the subject or, or not from a societal standpoint. And like a few decades ago, it was like astrology and scientific and science and scientific validation of astrology being the big thing. And like Gokland's results and the the idea of astrological research, quote unquote scientific research. And that's why you have. Organizations being founded with those names, like the International Society for Astrological Research or the National Council for Geocosmic Research. And then, you know, something that went on for two or three decades and then it hit a wall by the 1980s. And a lot of the energy fell out of that movement. And then all of a sudden there was the rise of horary astrology and um, the Jeffrey Cornelius thing of astrology as divination. And that is a conceptualization of what astrology is or what it's about and um, also some of the revival of the different traditional forms. And then this seems like a really important and interesting missing piece that hasn't been around up to this point, but the idea of astrology as magic and seeing uh, some astrologers or some groups of astrologers getting excited about the idea of astrology as magic or astrology in connection with magic is an interesting new phase that seems to be emerging that I, I haven't seen in previous at least recent decades so i can kind of appreciate it from that standpoint if, if 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 even only that
1: yeah well thanks yeah and i think um yeah astrology as magic um or uh, astrology and magic being rooted in 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 a world that has these particular characteristics is an important part of the discussion you know like like you said missing piece i'm um I'm really big on trying to provide missing pieces. You know, that was part of the Deccans, was like, what's cool that nobody is talking about? Well, you know, what can I, what can I, how can I, uh, how should we say, enrich the conversation by demonstrating that something is worth talking about? And so astrological magic is less specific than the Deccans, but I, I'm, you know, coming from the same place in the sense of like, trying to figure out what's relevant that we're not talking about.
0: Sure, definitely. And last point, just also sometimes, and it was interesting you mentioned with the electional thing that with this revival of interest or sudden revival of interest in astrology and astrological magic, you've also seen some things that make you a little nervous with like the elections. Are there any other things like that where you worry about, I don't know, the potential for for problematic issues or for I don't want to say abuse, but it's like I think sometimes of like the Indian tradition where they do still have a living contemporary talismanic tradition to some extent in remedial measures, but sometimes that gets abused with things like like the gemstone trade and stuff like that.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, you know, what's the what's to stop a charlatan from saying, "Oh yeah, I did this stone on the super rare election. It's so potent." And the customer doesn't have Um, the background to be able to say, okay, well, let me look at the election, and (laughs) you know, value, and you know, also just be able to have a feel for whether this person actually knows what they're talking about. Be like, yeah, this is uh, give me two thousand dollars. Absolutely, it absolutely has the uh, the potential to be abused, and so you know, when when anything gets popular enough, it will inevitably be abused. Right? I mean, there's like, and so that's been a little bit of a weird. Um, you know, I kind of got what I wanted in the sense that more people are talking about astrological magic, and now that it's happening, it makes me a little nervous. <laughs> right. But that's, you know, that's just the that's the price of being bring being part of things rather than being hidden away.
0: Yeah, I mean the the potential for abuse there is is there sort of sort of no matter what or even in any astrological application there's you know, appropriate uses of astrology and there's inappropriate uses or or different ways that things can go awry, even if you're just doing, you know, psychological astrology or something like that. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. Um tinkering with you gotta be careful tinkering uh with someone's head. You know, that's why the uh the psychology you know, the psychology field has such especially, you know, therapeutic counseling has such extensive codes of ethics. Um and so I don't know, you know, for me with astrological magic. I again, it's not something I like do professionally. It's something that I just do and I've done for a long time that I think is really interesting, has made my life a lot better. And so I've always um, you know, the my ethical um how should we say? Um I I have simply the ethics have been like am I willing to experiment with my life, right? <laughs> the answer has right. very often been yes. Um but um you know it's uh it's it's getting a little bit bigger in scope, so I don't know I'll do what I can to try to i mean i i i i i guess i I've taught two classes on astrological magic, and I try really hard to make sure people are doing it the right way and for the right reasons, but you know you can't knowledge uh knowledge is a cat which once it has left the bag is very difficult to stuff back in,
0: sure well it raises and hope maybe this can be a separate discussion at some point in the future but um in the early 2000s a lot of the astrological organizations were getting together and putting together their their own codes of ethics and now now 20 years later each of the astrological organizations has their own code of ethics but one of the issues that came up really quickly in when they started doing that was it became really clear that when an astrologer starts putting together a code of ethics of what's what's um appropriate versus not appropriate, it's often they design it relative to what they understand astrology is and what their personal sort of subjective approach to and beliefs in astrology are. And initially, that was designed by some of like the psychological astrologers, but then it immediately ran into conflict with some of the other Evolutionary astrologers who had a different philosophy and a different approach and belief about what was appropriate or not appropriate and therefore what was ethical contact conduct versus unethical conduct. And now it would be interesting if you get, I'm just sort of thinking in the future here, if you get a revival of, you know, practitioners or, or people that are using astrological magic as part of their astrological consultations, that there's almost a different set of ethical guidelines that would then need to be crafted about a what's appropriate within that context, just in and of itself, but then also how do you craft community-wide guidelines that are applicable to the psychological astrologers and the horary astrologers and the evolutionary astrologers, and then the magical astrologers at the same time? And that'll be an interesting question to to discuss at some point in the future.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that we we can. Um, there's a lot to learn from the Geotishis uh, about this because. You know they've had to for a long time. It's like, well, um, one of the remediations for your your Mars conjunct your blah 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 is like, oh, you get you know you get a you get a priest to do a particular uh, puja for you that costs X amount of money. Um, You know uh, gemstone remediations Um, and there's you know a right and way right and wrong way to do all of this stuff, but they've um, they've been doing this for a long time and so i think there's probably some some experience and knowledge to to draw upon for what's you know what's uh ethical and what's not
0: definitely that makes a lot of sense all right well i think that brings us to the end of this discussion i think we we're able to cover just about everything we wanted to cover here today um where can i guess people can can order the book either at the publisher's website threehandspress.com or they can go to amazon.com and search for the celestial art essays on astrological magic um i'll put links as i said in the description on the description page for this episode on the podcast website uh and where can and people can find out more information about your own work at austincopic.com right mhm all right brilliant well thanks a lot for for joining me today this is an awesome discussion i've been waiting to do this literally for like a year or two so i'm glad we finally got a chance to do it. I'm glad the book is out, and congratulations! Thank you. And um, yeah, keep up the good work.
1: All right, man. I will. Thank you. Thank you for all the the kind words. And this was a this was a fun conversation. I had like notes of stuff I was going to talk about, but it it ended up having a really nice flow.
0: Yeah, me too. I thought so. We just ran. We wrote down a bunch of random like bullet points we wanted to cover, but it actually ended up coming together quite nicely. So, yeah, I didn't so look at the long.
1: outline once.
0: Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's it for this episode. So thanks everyone for listening and we will see you next time.
1: Bye.